0: This episode is brought to you by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra income, but actually getting paid can take months. That's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations, within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully deposits directly into your bank account, with funds usually available the same day. They work with all major platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and others. They've helped thousands of hosts expand their business or cover unexpected expenses. Visit payfullynow.com, one word, for 50% off your first request with code LONELY. That's payfullynow.com, promo code LONELY. Um, a bronze sculpture. It's uh, maybe two and a half, three feet high. It has like flaming heels and very defined... Muscular elements um, and a very small head. I'm looking at an Amish transformer. <laughs> <laughs> it's got the cute little hat. I mean, you say uh, you say cool. Yeah. And yet, obviously, it's solid brass. Does it give you a sense of movement? Yeah, that be definitely. Leaning forward and striving. Um, got places to go apparently in a hurry. I mean this is not just movement but speed and power. It feels like there is like some sort of destination that it's like, it's very like set on something. It's just like I see a harried commuter like kind of stooped over with a raincoat billowing out behind him just trying to get home. I think it looks like it's moving because of the way that the muscles are to find, and, and I use the term muscles quite loosely, because so obviously it's more like ridges and planes. He's like It's like Mercury running, but he's really weighed down, because it feels really heavy, and his feet are supposed to have wings on them, but they just, they're sort of wings, but they're heavy and downward. It looks futuristic and sort of artificially reconstructed. It looks kind of unhuman and un- mechanistic. Do you like it? I actually do. Yeah? It, it's a little scary. I don't think I'd have it in front of my house, like to welcome people. It's almost, it's almost like, come in if, if you dare, kind of, kind of uh, look to it. But it's uh, very cool. Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishay. Episode 23, Umberto Boccioni's Unique Forms of Continuity in Space, from 1913. Human beings are a little weird when it comes to the future. We treat it like it's this thing that already exists, this third party that's separate from us, that's looking back at us and shaking its head, judging us, mocking our naivete. We didn't know yet, but the future knew. And we do so much in the present in the service of the future. Like if we sacrifice at its altar, it will reward us or take pity on us. But of course, it is us. It's the culmination of our own choices and the serendipity that is usually the result of someone else's choices, all yoked to the back of the perpetual march of time. And we embrace that march. We have to. It's the only way we feel like we have any sense of control, that its relentlessness doesn't scare the crap out of us. We embrace it with a belief in progress that since the future has nowhere to go but forward, it must be an improvement over the past. And we equate progress with technology and innovation and neat stuff. Forgetting, of course, that the future is still us. Now. And now. That said, we also do this weird thing when we study the past. Because we have a tendency to see history through the eyes and the moral authority of the present. Which is to say, we become that judgmental future. And we know we shouldn't. It's a totally unfair thing to do. We can't judge the past just because we've been spoiled. Because we already know how that story ended, and they didn't know any better and especially when we now benefit from the lessons that they had to learn. So this is all to say that when, for example, we're looking back at a crucial period just before the outbreak of World War I, and we're confronted with, let's say, a misogynistic band of speed-obsessed, history-hating, anti-intellectual, proto-fascist, and war-glorifying brothers like the Italian futurists were, we can certainly be leery of them in their own moment But it's not actually very fair to judge them in relation to the actual future that they never saw coming. Especially when to them, that future was so cool. And I want to go back to that word progress. We tend to have this idea that progress too is a thing. Not just the life that inevitably happens while we're busy making other plans, but something tangible with a power that can be harnessed. Or it's a terrifying unknown that threatens to undo everything familiar. And when we looked at this period of European art before, it was through the eyes of artists who were resisting progress. From Gauguin to the German Expressionists, we've seen artists in the post-impressionist pre-World War II period confront industrialization and modernity in Europe by essentially turning their backs on it, retreating from it, and moving instead towards cultures who, in their eyes, had managed either to sidestep it or just hadn't got there yet. Remember the appeal in episode nine, that non-Western, quote unquote, primitive art held for the German expressionists? Or in episode 14, when we looked at Gauguin and how much of the allegory in his work amounted to what he had hoped he would find in his midlife crisis flight to Tahiti, and not what was actually there. There was something so warm and so seductive about an exotic world that was freed from propriety and corsets, and particularly from technology. Its speed, its facelessness, its relentless march forward. But look at the fluid, dynamic form of this sculpture. This episode clearly is not about those people. Instead, it's about this group of young Italian artists who embraced technology, industrialization, the headiness of their own youth. They took enormous pleasure in the triumph of the man-made over nature this fetishized idea of progress that hooked them by the navels and pulled them violently forward. And this forward momentum was rocket fueled by a vicious hatred of the past, of museums, universities, history, gray hair. Futurism was about youth, aggression, angry young men, an art movement high on the fumes of its latest release of testosterone. And everything you need to know about them can be found in the fire and overwrought bombast of their manifesto, which was written by the Italian poet Filippo Marinetti and published in La della Miglia on February 5th, 1909. And really, it's impossible to choose just one quote from this thing. He begins, quote, Up to now, literature has exalted a pensive immobility, ecstasy, and sleep, We intend to exalt aggressive action, a feverish insomnia, the racer's stride, the mortal leap, the punch and the slap. We affirm that the world's magnificence has been enriched by a new beauty, the beauty of speed. A racing car whose hood is adorned with great pipes, like serpents of explosive breath, is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. He is referring here, of course, to the Hellenistic armless, faceless sculpture at the Louvre, but we'll come back to that. He continues with a toxic rant against the past and its champions. Quote, today we establish futurism because we want to free this land from its smelly gangrene of professors, archeologists, antiquarians. We mean to free Italy from the numberless museums that cover her like so many graveyards. We want no part of it, the past. We, the young and strong futurists. He then goes on to glorify war, quote, the world's only hygiene. Glorify militarism, patriotism, quote, the beautiful ideas worth dying for. And concludes this passage somewhat arbitrarily by glorifying, quote unquote, scorn for women, the only thing more useless than old people to society. In short, this manifesto is seething with a hubristic, steroidal desire to get the coach's attention, to get off that bench and into the game, and, like all 20 somethings, to possess the future without ever actually getting older. Look, I know they sound like absolute jerks. And fine, they're young. And when being young is one of the founding principles of your movement, it's an occupational hazard to be a little passionate and stupid. But their art isn't, and that's why we care about them. For all of this macho bravado, this hard-on for speed and diesel stink, their art had a remarkable and even sophisticated depth. Because what they contributed to the art world unequivocally was an insatiable experimental desire to see how many ways there were to capture this dynamic fury with any number of dynamic techniques. From diagonal brushstrokes to flaming sculptures to long photo exposures, there were countless ways they realized to grab your eye and pull. But what makes their art so effective is that this pull was surprisingly gentle on the actual eye. There's movement, but it feels meaningful and intentional. And in unpacking the work of the futurists, we see the necessity of a relationship between the past and the future. Because although the futurists so adamantly rejected the past, the aesthetic tools that they were using to create this effect came directly from there. We've seen from looking at Cézanne, for example, how much ponderous depth can come from a slow buildup of multiple brushstrokes. We've seen from Van Gogh how much swirling movement can come from giving those brushstrokes a place to go. And we've seen in cubism in particular, layers of these overlapping facets that capture a kind of simultaneity of experience. Remember in episode six when we looked at how Picasso wasn't just painting the object, but the object as seen from multiple perspectives and experienced in duration, the object over time. The futurists were deeply indebted to both the Cubists and the Post-Impressionists for providing a visual language that could easily be cribbed subbing out Picasso and Cézanne's intellectual exercises of looking and multiple perspectives, and replacing it with the physical movement and pull across the canvas that all of those overlapping perspectives provided for your eye. Take, for example, Umberto Boccioni's The City Rises from 1910, his first deliberate futurist painting. It depicts a horse charging into a city street with all of the airy whirl of a Van Gogh. The city and the exertion of the horse and the exertion of its flailing handlers melt into a heaving, windy rush of brushstrokes, which are at once soft and pliant, yet keep your eyes spinning in circles, especially if you try to make sense of the horse's head, which keeps bucking you off to other corners of the canvas. And this is just the tip of the futurist aesthetic iceberg. Remember, they were experimenters. And another way to show movement is to take those overlapping facets and show every movement at once, like all the frames of stop-motion photography superimposed. Four running dog legs become a 100 centipede legs, like we see in Giacomo Bala's utterly adorable painting, The Dynamism of a Dog on a Leash, from 1912. And we see how this technique would end up influencing Marcel Duchamp's iconic nude descending a staircase, an example of the merging of the intellectualism of cubism and the dynamism of futurism in a way that only an iconoclast like Duchamp could, which ended up being one of the foremost examples of early 20th century art experimentation. And according to a New York Times critic at the time, reminiscent of, quote, an explosion at a shingle factory. But back to the futurists. Another way to capture movement could be seen in the broken colors and short brushwork that we see in The Streetlight, also by Giacomo Balla, which depicts the hazy light around a gas street lamp as a halo of sparks, like an exploded firework, luscious as peacock plumage. We see every individual ray. And it would almost seem to echo the pointillism of the post-impressionist George Surratt, except that every ray has a direction, an arrow expanding outwards, which sends your eye flying along with those sparks. And though the Futurist Manifesto wants us to appreciate that this man-made light is outshining the moon and score one for technological progress, what's amazing is that in execution, we're seeing something evocative, intensely beautiful and indebted to a previous generation of painters. They also dabbled in other media. They were fascinated with the mechanics of photography and played with exposure length as another means of capturing duration. Consider the long exposure photograph that captures every position up and down the neck and seesaw back and forth of a musician bowing away on his cello, as we see in Anton Bragalia's The Cellist from 1913. Or consider his figure captured in the blur of a bow, morphing from upright to bent at the waist in Waving from 1911. And of course, they experimented with sculpture. And this brings us back to our object at hand, Baccioni's Unique Forms of Continuity in Space, from 1913. Baccioni had taken a step away from painting works like The City Rises and moved towards sculpture, furtively diving into what the futurists had declared to be a quote-unquote mummified art. His goal was to create a figure that exemplified stride, not as an allusion to it, not as the individual pages of a flipbook, a static object placing one foot in front of the other, and we fill in the rest of the story, but a visual experiencing of a stride. He wrote, quote, to render a body in movement, I do not portray the trajectory, that is the passage of one state of rest to another state of rest, but attempt instead to capture the form that expresses its continuity in space. This figure is the very definition of a continuous, fluid stride, its silhouette deformed and blurred by the wind and the speed. Boccioni said that the sculpture's form was inspired by a soccer player, moving into a perfectly weighted pass, dynamic, anticipating, yet completely balanced and deliberate. And technically, he strips the figure of anything that would encumber it, a face that registers emotion, an environment, musculature, even a real sense of a body beneath the flames, and instead creates a form of simultaneity, like that cubist painting, all the movement happening at once. And that sense of taut dynamic simultaneity is expressed in the parts of the body that most experience it, a powerful trunk Active, fluttering calves and thighs, mechanized and unstoppable as the terminator, as the march of time. A manifestation of the momentum of progress cast in bronze. Yet, ironically, in this manifestation of modernism and progress, there are still allusions in the sculpture to the past. This armless, faceless sculpture finds its roots not just in Auguste Rodin's sketchy, impressionist sculpture Walking Man, a sculpture that was intended to explicitly capture a dynamic stride, but even further back to the very same winged victory of Samothrace that Marinetti decries in the Futurist Manifesto as paling in comparison to a race car. This marble sculpture from 200 BCE was equally headless, equally armless, equally flapping with fabric that pushed against a Hellenistic wind machine, and an equally dynamic example of a static sculpture's movement before it was cool. The appreciation for the symbiotic relationship between past and future, the acceptance of the inevitability that one slips beneath your feet into the other, and that you will someday have more past behind you than future ahead of you, seems to me the definition of maturity. And it's tempting to couch the story of the futurists as one of immaturity, with a kind of be-careful-what-you-wish-for dismissal. Because after all, World War I broke out a year after this sculpture was carved, much to their delight. Speed, violence, hygiene, clear victory, ideas worth dying for. The promise of war embodied everything the futurists held dear. They truly believed that modern technological warfare would be the break from its classical past that Italy needed. But then several enlisted and a few subsequently died without ever getting the chance and the privilege to outgrow their youth, to earn some gray hairs, to value the lessons of the past. And this included Umberto Boccioni who was killed in action in 1916 at the age of 34 and with his whole future ahead of him. Special thanks to Mary Alice Elcock, my wonderful Writing a Song That Matters crew, and the intrepid museum-goers at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, or follow us on Twitter, at Lonely or on Instagram, where I regularly post bonus images from each episode, at thelonelypalette. Or like us on Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider leaving a rating and a review wherever you go. And if you've been meaning to support the show, but life is just spilling out everywhere, wouldn't a Lonely Palette tote bag fit the bill? Head over to patreon.com slash lonelypalette to learn more about supporting the show and getting some sweet swag in return. And I'll say we're painfully close to our first goal, so if you've been meaning to do it, this is the time. And you heard the voice of today's Patron of the Day at the top of the episode. And believe me when I say that he is a true patron of the arts and the patron saint of Pipe Dream Creative Projects, and I'm blessed to know him. Father Joe Ray, thank you so much. The Lonely Palette is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of Boston-centric, idea-driven podcasts. Another Hub and Spoker to check out this week is Zachary Davis's wonderful Ministry of Ideas, Which tackles a new sweeping idea with each episode and explores its origins in philosophy, history, even pop culture. One of my recent favorites is Generation Y, which questions the value of generational cohorts, which, as a quote-unquote gray millennial who still loves mixtapes, I totally appreciate it. Check them out at (laughs) ministryofideas.org. we yeah.